This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvalis joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on Wurundjeri Country too today in the studio here with PK. PK, welcome back from COVID. Hope you're feeling better. <laughs> welcome back from COVID. How are you feeling? Uh, what did you say when you had it? You said you don't want to get this thing. You don't want to get this thing. I, I didn't want to get that thing. No. Anyway, I, I got it though, which is, says it's the story of me in many ways, Fran, on election night at the Albanese function. Um, well, what a way to go. Okay. What a way to go, right? So, yes, um, it was certainly a super spreader event. I know a lot of people at that function who either got the flu or COVID. That's it's, what we got. And a new government. It's funny. And a new government. It's funny what happens to your mind, well, my mind anyway, since COVID and the lockdowns. I go into parties now or a room full of people and go... <gasps> Super spreader. Yeah. You just see germs floating around I the room. I do a risk analysis now. I'm like, okay, so I've had COVID now. Now it's the flu. Okay, I've had my flu shot. What risk can I take? I think you're pretty bulletproof for eight weeks. All right, eight That's weeks. That's my tip. I'll go for and eight weeks. start to worry again. I'm worried again. Well, thank you to, of course, uh, Laura Tingle who hung out with you and it was a great podcast. Yeah, it was It was fun and she she was fantastic. Thank you, Laura. We're going to be joined by Raph Epstein today from ABC Melbourne to talk about the new Labor government the challenges it faces. Early signs are those challenges, PK, are deep and wide and numerous, but we're going to get to that later. First job for any new Prime Minister is to name the new ministry. PK, it's one of the most experienced cabinets we've seen in new government, isn't it? Many surprises in there? The experience, I do think, is worth really reflecting on. Uh, so many ministers who have been either senior or junior ministers in the Rudd-Gillard governments. You know, Tony Burke, Penny Wong, uh, uh, Anthony Albanese himself, uh, Chris Tanya Plibersek. Mark Butler. It is actually quite uh, an experienced team, which really gives them a very good kickstart, I would say. And then um, surprises. Okay, well... We've got now the numbers of women in the Cabinet. It is a record number in Australian history, and I think that's worth mentioning. Um, it is slightly down, uh, which I think is a factional issue, and also the loss of Terry Butler and Christina Keneally on the shadow version of the Labor front yeah, I think bench. they had 11 in the shadow Cabinet, now they've got 10. Yeah. So I, I think that's worth noting. A few people have said, oh, it's still let's celebrate the moment. Absolutely. But the, the you know, 50-50 would have been good. And Anthony Albanese says he wants to get there still. And then um, some of the significant moments, I think, worth reflecting on. Anne Ali, Ed Husick to become the first Muslim minister sworn, sworn in. History does matter. Diversity does matter. And there, it is a quite a diverse team. Linda Burney is the new minister for Indigenous Australians, the first Indigenous woman to hold the portfolio and to be a cabinet minister. Um, so uh, that, a more diverse team. And then in terms of surprises, my view is that there were some surprises. Fran, like, for instance, what do you think? The Tanya Plibersek not staying in education, that was surprising. Th that was a big one for me. She's no longer the Minister for Education and Women. She's, you know, worked in those policy areas, led in those policy areas for a long time, really. She was named in the new ministry as the Minister for Environment and Water. On the face of it, I thought that's a demotion. 
I want to zero in on this. She is, without a doubt, one of Labor's best performers. She's worked tirelessly through this campaign. She crisscrossed the country, campaigning in marginal seats because she is very popular on the ground. And then this happens. So what's going on? I haven't been able to speak to her yet. There's only two explanations I can think of, though. One is tribal. She and Anthony Albanese have grown up together in Labor's left and, you know, growing up together, that means they've been rivals to some degree. She was also Bill Shorten's very high-profile deputy at the last election. She considered running for the top job after that election loss, but she didn't. Anthony Albanese did not keep her close in opposition, quite the reverse. She was outside of his so-called Praetorian Guard. So is this decision a reflection of that attitude still in government? If it is, I think that's a really bad sign, PK, a sign of a leader who's not really using the newfound authority to unite the party but still caught up in old settling old scores and fostering old tensions. Not a great start. Um, there is another explanation for the move, which I think will be to some degree the public one, which is that after the so-called green slide of this election, the Greens won a swag of seats, a swag of Senate positions, Labor needs a high-profile, strong performer in this portfolio to burnish their environmental credentials to try and win back those many thousands of particularly young voters who voted Green at the last election. Makes sense to put someone like Tanya Plebisek in that role because she is very popular with young people, I think. Um, But as I understand it, she wasn't given a heads up on this shift, which is, you know, really no way to treat such a senior member of the team, I wouldn't have thought. Um, So... Also, I'd like to point out that this portfolio is a really tough one. You might mm. see it's a, dem- a demotion, but any minister that's got the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement in their portfolio, I think, has their work cut out for them, don't you? Yeah, I've always I've seen it as a side move rather than a demotion. Yeah, fair I've, enough. I mean, the environment's side. important, right? Yeah, I would say side, but... Was the, it discussed with her? That's what I, I understand it wasn't, and that's what I thought was a little... You know, she certainly enthusiastically said should take it on, and um, you know, and that's that's great. That's that is well, that is absolutely great because one of the big messages that came out from Anthony Albanese is that they need to be a unified team and all of that. That's absolutely right. I mean, Labor, hopefully, you would think, has learnt some lessons of its uh, period in power, which is that uh, those kinds of rivalries and that that kind of um, disunity is death. So uh, this, they need to start off on a strong footing. Look, you know, Jason Clare takes on education. I, I do think that is seen as a bit of a reward, isn't it? Um, such a big domestic portfolio after a strong performance during the campaign as well. He was, you know, he really, his, his star rose during the campaign significantly. I think it's really good they've given him a significant portfolio because I think he, as we saw in the campaign, he has, a, you know, a lot of chops for this. He, he's got talent and in a sense in opposition he underperformed, I think, and it's, and it's really great to give him a chance to step up and really you know, show show what he can do. Education's good. I actually thought they'd probably put him in home affairs. You know, that's a super ministry or it was a super ministry. Uh, maybe there's some changes going on around there too. But I think it's terrific to have him up there. Now, the other interesting one is Claire O'Neill. Watch that space. She's been um, appointed the home affairs minister. Obviously, Christina Keneally can't do it because she didn't make her way back into the parliament. She is, you know, future Labor Prime Minister territory. She's clearly very talented. She did a very good job on aged care in opposition. So she's a big and important, I think, appointment. And then bringing in some new people. I think it is a no-brainer that Dr Anne Arley is now an assistant minister in an important portfolio, which is early childhood development. Like, no-brainer. She is such a star performer. 
and really shows the, the, the diversity of the Labor team as well. And then um, a new uh, minister in Annika Wells too, who is has only been in Parliament for one term but is seen as such a rising star of the, the kind of young cohort of Labor future women. And so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting team. I thought it was a bit rough on Jenny McAllister that she didn't make it. She's been around a while. I think she's talented. She was a former. And does that not speak to the factional issues? I think it does speak to the factional issues. Um, we could go, we could do a whole podcast on that. But Yeah, well, the Labor factions are still very strong and still dictate the, the numbers and the spots. Um, and uh, I think that if if there are any disappointing decisions, it, it goes back to that. I am a bit surprised that aged care is outside of Cabinet. Um, you know, it was such a central promise, as was childcare. Now, there are ministers that have responsibilities for those uh, for those areas in Cabinet, but the actual ministers are outside in the outer ministry. And I think... I was a bit surprised at that. Yeah, I think Mark Butler will be driving a lot of that, won't he, too, as health minister too because it becomes the health and aged care department, yeah, I understand, true. so that'll be an interesting space too. Look, Fran, I think um, in a really significant development also, which is very important for us to note, it's also been confirmed this week that Anthony Albanese will lead a majority Labor government, not a minority government. Uh, there are now 77 seats. They've claimed both McNamara and the seat of Gilmore. And Fran, Parliament hasn't yet returned, of course, it's the last week of July that the um, Prime Minister says they will return. But the Prime Minister is already talking about a second Labor term to build in a Labor legacy. Obviously, to actually do lasting things, you need to be in for, for longer than three years. And he's getting back to work on that. Let's take a listen. This is a government that has hit the ground running. This is a government that's determined to not waste a single day in office. And there is no time to waste, PK, because, you know, Labor will lead with a majority, but um, there are lots of major challenges which we'll get to with RAF, you know, and they're spelling them out and making no secret of those. They want everyone to know that this is tough, the environment we've come into, and we've talked about this before, it is really tough. And, you know, we've got the, the, the gas price issue at the moment, which we'll talk about huge. Um, but, of course, being a majority means they won't be reliant on the crossbench to get things through the lower house, though in the Senate they will be reliant on the Greens. But what implications do you think that's going to have for their relationship in the lower house, particularly with the independents? It's a huge crossbench there now, 16, with all the Teals, the Greens and the others, Helen Haynes and Andrew Wilkie and um, Rebecca Sharkey and, the, you know, there's a whole the lot of them. The names go on, that's yeah, the point. Yeah, there's a whole lot of them. Um, how do you think Anthony Albanese is going to manage this? If he's smart and all indications are pointing to that he is on these matters very much smart, he will bring the crossbench in um, into his circle of trust and not make them irrelevant. I wonder how he'll manage that. What will that look like? I mean, I remember when he was managing uh, as the manager of government business in the Gillard years, the crossbench, and he did a lot of the the sort of the talking. He did, there, and there were weekly meetings set up with the prime minister and uh, probably with himself, I think, at that time too. But 16 people is a lot to manage. I wonder how they're going to do it. Tony Burke has already said he's going to sit down and talk to them about maybe giving more questions in question time to the crossbenchers private members bill space for that because they really don't get much of a look in now, do they? No, they don't. And it is in, I think this is the most important political point I want to make, it is in the Labor Party's political interests to both embolden and keep those independents in those teal seats empowered and in power. Um, and that's the crude reality here. 
while those seats are robbed of robbed, I don't mean that like people vote mm. in a pejorative way, but take you know not not in Liberal Party hands, it gets harder to get to the magic majority number for the Liberal Party and the and the Nationals together, and and that is a good thing for the Labor Party as, as they pursue a long term government. So how to do that? You do want to provide every part of of the opportunity for those teal ca- independents. Mm. Let's call them independents, which is what they are. Um, to to be relevant and seen by their communities as being worth having voted for because if they don't and there is a shift, then that is not in the Labor Party's interest. So that's why yeah, I think they so that's they the real find, politic of it. But that's why they'll find a way yeah. to make them be relevant because if they don't, um, they actually make it more possible for, you know, the Liberal Party to, to get inroads. And I don't think they want that scenario because they also uh, have a small majority. Yes, they got majority. But, this you know, politics has changed. There's a lot of people who are not in the... Um, not voting for the mainstream parties. Now, Labor has its own existential long-term crisis as well that it will grapple with. It does. And it knows it. So there's two things, isn't it? As I say, that's the real politic of it. They've got to keep, if they can, those seats out of Liberal hands and you do that by building up these candidates and, and making sure they're in a strong position to win again. But also the politics has changed. The electorate is split. This is a new reality. And Labor needs to be show, I think Anthony Albanese needs to show that as a Prime Minister, he's cognizant of that and can work with the new Australian Parliament, the new Australian way of doing politics for him to draw the respect from the broader electorate too, I think. So there's that as well. Um, but yeah, There are so right. many reasons to make it work. I, wonder, I can't I mean, think of the reasons not to. There are a couple of things immediately that Labor could do to make it certainly appear that it's doing that, which is Helen Haynes has a bill on the table for an independent, federal independent anti-corruption commission, and Zali Stegall has a climate bill on the table. Both of those have a lot of support on the crossbench. Is Labor, for instance, going to foster discussion with those bills and allow those to be owned, in a sense, by those crossbench members and come in and give support to them? It's a big step for a government to do that, to hand over ownership of those issues to that crossbench, but it would be a big sign too. Mm. And... Uh, Peter Dutton, and we'll get into that with our guest as the new opposition leader has kind of spoken positively, hasn't he, about working with Helen Haynes um, about the integrity bill. Um, Interestingly, uh, again, that puts some pressure on Labor, doesn't it, about Mm. their version. Um, So uh, that appears to be one message he did read from the election. Um, Some of the other ones, there's still a few question marks on. Uh, Look, I think Anthony Albanese is actually demonstrating so far, you know, a week and a bit, whatever it is, into the job, that he does have the right political skill set for this particular um, situation that we find ourselves in with the fracturing of the mainstream political parties. Yes, he's got a majority, but with a different different kind of parliament. And isn't it funny, I just want to make the last reflection before we bring our guest in, Fran, how um, incumbency and actually having the power changes the optics immediately in terms of looking prime ministerial. I keep hearing people tell me he looks like a prime minister and I'm like, funny that when you become a prime minister, you start looking like a prime minister. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we often talk about when you change the government, you change the country, but I agree with you. And I remember Paul Keating saying to me decades ago when I was interviewing him, we were on an overseas trip and an election was coming up and he was talking about the mantle of the prime ministership, that, you know, it becomes you, you become it, that it changes you. And this is exactly, it's it's every every change of prime ministership, we watch it before our very eyes. Yeah, that's right. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. 
Raph Epstein is the host of Drive on ABC Radio Melbourne. Welcome to the party room. Always an honour to speak to you both. I just love that I get invited into the warm cosy cocktail party. I love the intro music. It makes me feel very well, very much at home. We're just out of election. You've had a huge campaign. Uh, you know, Melbourne was really where a lot of the action was Where the story, friend. Melbourne's uh, the story. Melbourne's the story. Well, <laughs> on that, we've just been talking about the new Labor WA cabinet. I would beg to differ. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they've got the um, portfolio representatives to prove it. <laughs> it is my job to be parochial. <laughs> we've just been talking about the new Labor cabinet, but there was also a shake-up, of course, in the Liberal and National Party leadership this week. The Nats elected David Littleproud, um, knocking off Barnaby Joyce's leader, Perrin David, the deputy. For the Liberals, it's Peter Dutton, elected unopposed in the end, and Susan Lee, former Environment Minister, elected deputy. Here's the new opposition leader talking about the lessons learned from the sweeping loss for the Libs. 200,000 people had voted for Teal candidates. About 700,000 people had left the coalition to go and vote for candidates on the right. So uh, we've got a problem on the left and the right. We are the Liberal Party. We're not the Conservative Party or the Moderate Party, and... You know, this is something John Howard believes very strongly in as well. Uh, we're, we're liberals. Well, we're liberals, Raph, but it was no accident Peter Dutton quoted the statistics, I suspect. Are we any clearer yet on discerning the new direction for the Liberal and the National Parties after this loss, or is that fight still to be had? Well, the people who are saying, hey, we should tax central, and the people who are saying, what about tax reform and stamp duty, maybe we should be like the New South Wales Liberals, they're not in the parliament, are they? Uh, the person I had on uh, straight after the election result was Alan Tudge, who was silent during the campaign, of course. And when I said to him he had not mentioned, and this is someone who is in the party room, I said to him he had not mentioned integrity, climate and women, he said they are inner city issues. Did he? Yeah. He said that's much more, that matters much more in the inner city than it does in the outer suburbs. There is this feeling very much, and I don't know how much this exists outside of Victoria, they're going to focus on the outer suburbs. And you heard that with Peter Dutton this week saying, look, big business is not our friend. That feels that to me... That line was very key, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's uh, true. That's the strategy. I don't know that's if it'll... That's the strategy, but there's work. no getting around the fact that they lost the seats in the inner city. Well, one more parochial observation. Have a look at the map of state Labor seats. Uh, state Labor seats. It's a sea of red. It looks exactly like the federal seats have become. It was like that beforehand. The demographic shift has been on. Has happened. Yeah, the Liberal Party vote has gone down 10% in Victoria from 2013 to 22. They've gone from about 40% to 30%. So the shift is 100% on. What the Liberal Party do to respond to that and how they respond to that, I noticed Laura Tingle last week saying to you, look, the Liberal Party's a, a bit of a rump, which is a, a bit of, it's kind of true. If you take out the LNP seats... Mm. There aren't many Liberal MPs So it's about finding left. a new hunting ground. Yeah, and I don't know where that is. Okay, Who so are their people? we know what they think their hunting ground could be. It's actually not dissimilar to the, the kind of thinking that was clearly going on in Scott Morrison's head and his office. Um, perhaps the way to get those votes is different, though, under mm. Peter Dutton. I don't hear as much at this stage of this culture war stuff or the, you know, let's talk about transport yes. or whatever. He doesn't think that issue is going to resonate as much. He talks about the working class voters and aspiration and the idea that they're the forgotten people. Is, Do they feel enough? forgotten or were well, they forgotten for nine years well, under that government? Well, you got the sense that the Scott Morrison, with that tactic, was a real break glass option, going for the trans stuff. I mean, it was really reaching in hard because they they didn't have any much time and he had to try and make a difference. It didn't work. My sense of it is John Howard was fantastic at the wedge on top of policy. He was really good. You know, we all remember 2001, the 
turning asylum seekers and, and the terrorism issue, conflating them. And that was a wedge that was used very effectively against Kim Beasley. I think when you look back on history, especially at the last three years of Scott Morrison's government, it's all wedge, no policy. I mean, that is the problem. They've got themselves wedged into, if I can brutalise a metaphor, just the outer suburbs. I don't understand how the coalition governs if the centre of the cities look red, and they look red, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, they're either red or teal or green, but they're not blue. Um, And you've got to get to some suburbs that are quite far away from the centre of the cities right now before you get a Liberal or a National MP. And I'm just, it's unclear to me how that provides them a basis to get back in the Well, it's all about who you stand for and what your policy positions are, isn't it? Ultimately, that is what it will come down to. And so people want to look at 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 a party and go, are they talking about the things I want to talk about? And that we know is usually economics. It's usually an economic position where sure. who are you talking to? And that's why Peter Dutton's saying we're not here for big business. We are not the party of big business. One line that really struck me, Patricia was talking this week to the New South Wales Attorney General. I actually only heard, I didn't hear the start of the interview. It was about the new consent laws in New South Wales. And I heard this incredibly sensible, incredibly rational incredibly level-headed discussion around teenagers having sex and consent and how we can actually turn that into something that is both a positive experience and a safe experience. The template is there. Look at the the actual state government that's been incredibly aggressive and successful on renewable energy is the Liberal Party in New South Wales. So it does seem to me like right now, I mean, everything can change and events, of course, will upend it. Dave Sharma's words on tax reform being the the sorts of things they need to look at, he's out, right? He got kicked out. But if they don't pursue that path, I don't understand why they wouldn't because the New South Wales Liberal government's Mm. a perfect example of how it can work. I think that's right. Look, I just want to reflect also on the the other change in leadership that happened. Barnaby Joyce obviously was knocked off as Nationals leader by David Littleproud um, this week. And Barnaby Joyce was seen as actually the individual of Barnaby Joyce and the empire of Barnaby Joyce as knocking off some of those Liberals in those seats. He's doubled down and said, it's, you know, look at your own backyard. Don't look over the fence. Don't look at me. I, I held on to my seats. But was it him? Of course it was him. Well, wasn't I, were only you hearing him. that on the radio here in of Melbourne? Of course it was. It wasn't only him. It was partly him. A significant, look, number one, Josh Frydenberg's the treasurer who had a fantastic energy policy that was backed by every significant group in the country from the Minerals Council through to the Renewables Energy people, and they threw it away, right? So that is a government that threw away a fantastically significant policy. So, of course, it's about policy. But 100%, there was a Barnaby Joyce factor that one of the most devastating lines any of the independents could use, and we're talking about a certain sector of the electorate, was vote Dave, get Barnaby. Of course that made a difference. And Barnaby Joyce actually came on the radio, our ABC radio election night coverage. He was furious with me for even suggesting that he had anything to do with the coalition's loss of its foothold in the cities. He doesn't see that as his responsibility. Clearly some of it is at his feet. And can I add one postscript to that? He now says it's a great relief that he's now leader. He's not sad. He's not leader. Well, what, but what sort of person hangs on to it and drives a truck through their policy and then goes, oh, you know what, when you take it off me, oh, geez, great weight off my shoulders. Oh, well, we all have to make ourselves feel better, I suppose. Oof. But I do remember some time ago, PK, um, suggesting that Barnaby Joyce was aware of the fact that, it, in fact, he made it quite clear to me and others that he wouldn't be doing a lot of national media 
because he certainly did. Because as he come on our and breakfast the whole as, campaign, as he said, you know, it doesn't really help Trent and the others necessarily when I come on your show. So he he was aware of that, and that was clearly yeah. being discussed. It's interesting. He did make a commitment to the Liberals that he wouldn't go on um, radio shows like mine and yours formally he didn't because come on, did, didn't want to come on Melbourne Radio. No, because yeah. um, he he but he but his argument was I don't want to give them an excuse. Yes. Um. Right. But the but yes, what he that, wasn't necessarily accepting it, but he no, agreed. That's right. But but also what's interesting about that is the idea that you can just be silent for a campaign, and that 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 repairs. <sighs> Look, the damage. It's, it's like the criticism of Labor in 2019. You can't say one thing in the city and the other thing in the bush. The number one thing you have to realise, in the last parliament there was a significant majority of MPs who wanted to do more on integrity and wanted to do more on climate. Those people were in the Liberal Party room. If you added the Liberal, uh, sorry, the Labor votes, the crossbench, and the people in the Liberal Party who wanted to do more, there was a significant majority already in the parliament who wanted to do more on climate and on integrity issues. They didn't do it. They didn't do it significantly because of the leadership of the National Party. And what they ended up with is the same representation in Parliament of people who want to do more on integrity and climate, but they're not wearing Liberal Party shirts. That's the end result. That's a significant result. And it does fall at the feet of whoever manages that coalition relationship. Yeah, I think that's right. Let's shift to China because it will be the defining story of this government. Um, China's Premier Li Keqiang, second most powerful man in China, reached out to congratulate Anthony Albanese on his election win, signalling he was sort of ready to work with the Australian government. Albanese said, thanks, but show me the money effectively, basically saying lift the trade bans and then we can talk. Do you think there's real signs of a thaw in the Australia-China relationship? I mean, it is in China's interests as well in an economic sense, for sure, as it is in both of our countries. Well, I don't think anyone sitting in Australia can say we can see what's going on in the communist government's mind. I don't know if it is it to their advantage, actually, if they trade with us. I mean, may, maybe it is. I'm not sure. The biggest difference... Well, their economy's in trouble too. It is, but whether or not they buy some of our wine and barley, I, I don't know if that makes a big difference. The biggest difference, though, is seven weeks ago, Maurice Payne was at a fundraiser in Sydney. Um, she sent the junior minister to the Solomon Islands. She didn't go. In the last seven days... Penny Wong's been to two or three different countries in the Pacific. I mean, that is back the big difference, now, isn't, isn't she? it? She's back there yeah. now. She's gone to Tonga and Samoa. So that's, that is the big difference. The unanswered question, and of course it's impossible for Australian governments to answer, is Beijing going to change its mind? Are they going to soften? But they're doing a lot more. And one, the other thing that's important to note, as they go out the door of the coalition government, there's that leak in the Australian newspaper, the foreign minister and DFAT, they wanted to spend a tonne more money, mm. aid money, mm. in the Pacific. They didn't do it. That leak went out the door just as, as they knew they were going to be voted out. So it's clear we don't know what China's going to do. We can never know how they're going to respond. There's a ton of people in Australia who thought we needed to do more and we've just started to do it. Mm. Richard Miles, Labor's Deputy Prime Minister and the new Defence Minister, so, you know, he, he obviously took defence. It was the best-kept secret, not the worst-kept <laughs> secret. You know, we all knew he wanted it, but now he is the Defence Minister. Um, was accused of being soft on China by Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton uh, and the Australian newspaper throughout the campaign. Um, he's now called China Australia's biggest security threat. But this is really a sensitive area for the government. They need to broker a change in the relationship if they can because there is kind of an economic interest too as well. Well, um, but you'd think that, you know, Peter Dutton has sort of targeted him so much. Will he sort of swoop in here? Does he, will he have leverage on this? Is, is, is he, is Richard Miles the best person for this job? Oh, look, I, <laughs> 
He's the person the Prime Minister wants in the job. I, again, the lesson from the last government is the biggest danger is over-promising and under-delivering, you know. So Labor's got that problem already with some issues around inflation and cost of living. The biggest mistake the Coalition made was thumping their chest and saying we would make a difference on China. And then, boom, in walks the Solomons um, and, and just completely rips the rug out from underneath Peter Dutton's feet in the middle of an election campaign. bit of humility might work, whether or not Richard Miles... Whether or not anything we say makes a difference to China, I don't think the Prime Minister thinks that. But they do think we need to talk to the people China are talking to. Yes. We've obviously got sway when it comes to, you know, the great un, uh, unspoken subject of the campaigns, Indonesia, right? Massive country, hugely influential. They, they're friendly, much more friendly with Russia and China than we are. We've got to talk to them and see if we can do that, uh, use them to in some way influence the future yeah. rather than beating our chests and, and turning foreign policy into a domestic political And gamble. Penny Wong, as foreign minister, has, has in, as shadow foreign minister, made that clear. It's going to be about us building our relationships and cooperation in the region. I'm really interested in for the postmortems of this election campaign to see how much impact, if we can figure that out, the Solomons deal had yes. on, on the outcome, how much impact the inflation numbers and the interest rate decision made. I think that'll be interesting. I want to know something from you, Frank. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. You've watched foreign ministers come and go uh, because someone said to me this week, foreign ministers, the best foreign ministers are the best politicians. They're not the people who are the really good foreign policy wonks who've done a PhD and a thesis and all that sort of thing. Is Penny Wong a substantially good politician? Is she going to be any better? Because I don't know the answer to this. Will she be any better at knitting and those personal relationships and coaxing other foreign capitals a bit closer to well, us? Well, we, we saw a Good example of this with Julie Bishop, didn't we? She was a very transactional foreign minister and very good. She was like a superstar. She became on that world stage mm. because of that, that what you're talking about. Penny Wong is very different to that, but she is substantial and she oozes substantialness. Well, she, does. There, she does. Um, yeah. I think. So she's written some very significant uh, speeches uh, on this as, as opposition shadow, which means that her thinking is clear and I think that's really important here. Um, how will she go in those transactions? Well, you know, I, I, I'm struck by, was it Roy Morgan um, policy a couple of months ago that had Penny Wong as the most trusted politician oh, in really? Australia? Uh, uh, right. That sort of stuck in my head. That's just, a Trust is a really key thing in foreign relations. And she was the one there at Copenhagen. She's the, she did the two all-nighters yes. uh, and then got done by the got Chinese. Out of that, right? And that's so, going to be a problem. Yeah. We'll get to that so with the relations with the Greens, I think. She understands yeah, how these uh, things so work. So I, I think she will go well in those one-on-ones. I'm not saying she's going to be the superstar at the karaoke night. I'm not going to say that, but at the end of the conference. But I do think that she is a person of substance and she is proving it, uh, that she's got the chops for this by just, you know, heading yeah. off straight away and getting into it. Yeah, she is actually quite warm too. So, and she, and she will, you know, ham it up because that's her job and she takes her job incredibly seriously. Yeah. She, she mm. wanted this job. I just want to go to two areas before we end and we've, we haven't got a lot of time left. No. So we're going to be... Um, These are big questions. Yeah, and they're huge. Cost of living, and I know it's huge, but um, clearly now there is, uh, well, what does Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, call it a cost of living crisis, but there's a really obvious one. Innes Willox calls this gas crisis we're seeing apocalyptic price rises we're dealing with. Government has a few options that it could pursue, um, pulling, you know, the trigger, for instance, on keeping more of our gas supply in the country, not exporting it so we can use it. Huge consequences, though, there. Um, RAF, this is now their problem. The interesting politics of this is for how long can you say this is all the past exactly. government's problem? So it is 100%. So we had 10 years of dithering on climate policy, it's a huge problem. However, 
they now have a weapon in their hands, a weapon handed to them by Malcolm Turnbull, that gas reservation trigger that Jim Chalmers could pull. Which has not been pulled yet, has hasn't it? Hasn't been ever. pulled. And Jim Chalmers isn't showing heaps of it. She hasn't decided yet, no. to be fair, but it's not heaps he of enthusiasm. He wouldn't give you an answer on the radio, would he, Peter? No, he wouldn't. He would that's not give you, you an answer. But that's a, a weapon, a legislative tool handed to them by Malcolm Turnbull, and you've got a ton of people saying, pull that trigger, use it. And it, look, if you start talking about it on the radio, the fact that uh, manufacturers in China get our gas four or five dollars cheaper than manufacturers here, it drives people nuts that it is a, a weapon that has not already been used. On top of that, you've got all the manufacturers and the business groups saying, just do it, just pull that lever. The thing that really strikes me about inflation, I didn't, I've never really spent my reporting life having to deal with the policy problems around inflation. But that early 70s fuel crisis that sparked inflation, that kind of changed the world, changed the nation, mm. laid the groundwork for Hawke and Keating, et cetera, et cetera, didn't get killed off until we had a recession and then the Asian financial crisis. So when people start screaming at this new government, do something to squeeze energy prices now to stop inflation running away, I think they're under incredible pressure. And they don't actually know, no one really knows the right answer. So I think all of the past politics is going to disappear very, very soon. Is it Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, who was asked what was the most important influence on his government? Events, dear boy, events. Yeah, events. <laughs> so, you know, what comes next is actually going to shape yeah. uh, the politics much more than what's been. And on that question of how long does a new government have before the public starts mm. to lay the blame on you, look, they're going to have an economic statement, a financial statement in October, a budget effectively in October. Maybe they've got till then. Well, and... you remember Fuel Watch and Grocery Watch, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, Kevin yeah. Rudd promised he could do Nonsense. something about price inflation and... It costs you, doesn't it, yeah. to say, look, I can fix this. They all do it and, and then and they can't. And Chalmers is being pretty sort of devoted and smart yes. about it, saying we can't fix this, this is a huge problem, look out, while he can still blame them. So they know that. They remember Peter Costello with the Beasley back hole. I think they're taking that lesson. Um, just finally and briefly, PK and I talked about this earlier, but Labor's faced with this very green parliament. Uh, the Greens look set to hold the balance of power. They will hold the balance of power in the Senate big presence in the House of Reps. They're already pushing Labor hard on no new coal and gas mines. Here's Adam Bant. What we're talking about is not opening up new ones. And for ones that haven't commenced operation yet, there is now a, a very clear environmental and economic case for doing it. Now, that is a big call. The, many in Labor have never forgotten or forgiven the Greens for sinking the CPRS. Uh, Penny Wong, Anthony Albanese, chief amongst them. What are the signs that Labor and the Greens will be able to get to some kind of cooperative working relationship in the Senate. Uh, if you want to annoy a Labor person, talk to them about a green slide. If you want to make them really angry, mention that Adam Ban talks about the mandate that he has. Mention that word, a yeah. Greens mandate, and it drives them nuts. Surely the strategy is in the House... They're not even talking to the Greens. They'll talk to the Teals. They deal the Teals in, as you guys said, to mm. keep the Libs out of those seats. But in the Senate... And it's a different story. You do have a few powers, right? You've got Greens plus Pocock or Greens plus Lambie or the Liberal Party. Oh, yeah. That is a path. Uh, I don't understand how the Greens can stop, say, um, the Muswellbrook coal mine that was approved by the New South Wales government mm. this week. What do they do? Attach an amendment in the Senate to a budget bill in October that says, hey, we'll pass your supply, but by the way, you've got to block a common. I don't know yeah, how the Yeah, but Federal Labor's position is that. to open up new gas fields. Of course fields. it is. I don't know how the Greens impose that agenda on them without being burnt, and I also don't know how they impose that agenda on Labor. Just technically, how do they actually 
do that. And they were all there, right? Penny Wong was there, as you mentioned. Um, that cabinet is full of people who were burnt by that relationship with the Greens last time. They just, if they could, they'd do three years without even talking to the yeah. Greens, but they got her because they're in the Senate. Yeah, yeah. And look, uh, it's clear that. Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese are probably out of the hierarchy of the Labor Party, the two, wouldn't you say, Fran, who yes. are the most the green. green haters. <laughs> yeah, I know, because they're the lefties that well, have they're under threat, dealt with right? them. Yeah. That's the teals threaten the libs, the greens threaten well, the Well, Albanese was under great threat in his own seat some years ago from the greens. Mm-hmm. That's, that's easy I, now. I suspect uh, he'll be right now. Well, the existential <laughs> crisis while. conversation we used to have about Labor, especially you know around 07 and 10 and 13, that's now the conversation with the Liberals. Well, tell that to Terry Butler. And I reckon that will continue to be a theme for the Labor Party too when they know it. Hey, one more thing on Cabinet diversity. I know you've already mentioned it. I think the other really significant part of that diversity story, we've never had a Jew and a Muslim in the Cabinet before. Um, That's really interesting. You've got Mark Dreyfus getting sworn in uh, on the the Old Testament, the Torah, wearing his kippah. You've got Ed Husic and Anne Ali. Um, it's not the most, it's not the biggest divide in this country. No. But there, there are sometimes significant issues between the Jewish community and the Muslim community. There'd be no divide between those three people. But just as a little, another notch in the history of this nation, uh, it's worth a mention. That okay. is very interesting. Just before we go, what do you think, is there a sense of, always when the, as we've said before, when you change the government, you change the country. Is there a sense of, Optimism, do you think, at the start of this new government, of any new government? I heard a Labor person say this morning, oh, the whole country's excited and feels vibrant. And I'm not sure that's the mood. I think there is a mood of relief. I think there there was a real need to uh, change the channel. (laughs) Whether or not they're excited about a Labor government, uh, I think that's much harder to tell. The people who are excited have elected an independent in their seats. There'd be some enthusiastic Labor volunteers, I'm sure, in some seats. I don't think the country's excited. I think the country's a bit nervous. The country's clearly ready to give the new mob a go. They're 100% okay. Show us what you can do, that they really want action on a whole lot of significant things like climate. The hard thing for the government, of course, is you're going to have a whole welter of great climate change policies, but if my gas bill and my electricity bill goes up 30% this year... Uh, for how long am I willing to give the new mob a go before I start to get grumpy? One group that I do think is um, noticeably feeling good are women, though. I think I think there ha- there was a potent issue there with yeah, women, that's true. and I think there has been a sense of relief among women. But it's, isn't it relief that it's gone more than excitement about what is coming? I don't. Yeah, oh. but it's but it's a oh, and and the sense of you know we. Sure. We can't just take it anymore. Well, I think another group is Indigenous Australians because there is a really solid promise now sure. to move towards a referendum on constitutional recognition. And hopefully too, I know this is something Laura touched on with you last week, Fran, it'd be really good if we could get back to the fight being over policy rather than politics. You know, and that, that was a real feature of this country. John Howard and Paul Keating grew up at a time when you had a real ding-dong hell for leather, fight over policy because you had to work out what to do because the problems were huge and immense. And let's face it, we lost that. We have not had ding-dong battles over policy because they were the best way to deal with the problem. Well, we some people would say the low-hanging fruit has been picked and so the, the reform changes sure. are massive challenges, but yes. We Inflation and climate change requ- might require some policy fixes. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Raf. You have been an excellent guest as usual. Always a pleasure to be here. See you, Raf. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. 
Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And the bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time, and we won't have a real question time till the end of July. So um, there you go. We've got us. Okay, so we've got this question. Chris Bowen rejected calls this week to increase Labor's 43% 2030 um, emissions reduction target, saying they had a mandate, even though they'll likely have a majority. Will Labor read the room after the results of the Teals and the Greens and up their ambition or stick to the current plan, asks Jackson. Yeah, it's a big question, Jackson, and a lot of people are talking about it. And we've already mentioned, you know, Labor and the Greens working together. They have history in this area, of course, around the whole CPRS, which the Greens voted down all those years ago. Um, Anthony Albanese is, you know, one of those in Labor, I'd say, who has more sort of grind against the Greens than some others, he and Penny Wong, interestingly. Um, But... um, Will they do it? I think they will try and do it, certainly. And Chris Bowen has also made it clear that he set this up in a way that it doesn't need to be legislated. So that midterm target doesn't actually need to be legislated, though initially I think they are going to try and legislate both targets. Will the Greens give it to them? Will the Teals give it to them on the basis that it's mandated? Or will they try? All the Teals have a position of at least a 50% Uh, emissions target or 60%. Will they try and get Labor up to 50%? Will Labor give some ground as a sign of goodwill? You know, Pika and I were talking earlier about wanting to sort of bank some some goodwill with this huge crossbench. I doubt it. I think they're going to go for 43%. Not on this. I think I personally think they could go to 50% and that would be without causing much damage sort of economically or with the stakeholders the business council of australia for instance they've backed 50% so they've got that sitting there but I don't think they're going to No I think they particularly in the opposition leader matters um I think they 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 stare down the barrel of a Peter Dutton opposition which I think could look very much like a Tony Abbott opposition and they do not want a repeat of history by looking like they're overambitious and, uh, you know, I think they're war wounded from what's happened in the past and so they will stick very much to the ambition that they've promised in terms of legislation and agreement. I wouldn't be surprised though if they try and ratchet up the outcome um, remember, you can you can overshoot, <laughs> uh, and then go. Well, we've gone. Oh, yeah. we've gone further. And, but, then, and but maybe maybe um, the Peter Dutton opposition will surprise everyone and come in behind the forty three percent, and the crossbench won't matter because does the opposition need to, as I say, burnish its credentials here and lift their oh, ambition? I think they do, and Trent Zimmerman made that point. You know that that they do, but you know what? I don't know if we're seeing signs yet that that's about no. to happen. Send your questions in because. We love getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag the party room or email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au. Yeah, that was a great question. Exactly the one that is on everyone's mind at the moment, I think. Remember, you can follow the party room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. You certainly can. Now, we're going to take just a break next week, just a pause, not a long break. Don't be alarmed. We'll be back. We'll be back. Just take a pause, just, you know, regroup. Have a deep think, deep dive, deep think. Um, We will be in your feeds the week after, though. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.